Hello, and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're taping this week on Thursday, August 5th at 10 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined via video conference by Sarah Carlin-Smith of The Pink Sheet. Hi, Julie. Alice Miranda Olstein of Politico. Good morning. And Rachel Kors of Stat News. Hi, Julie. More than enough news this week, so let us get to it. Uh, we're going to start with COVID, or more accurately, Delta, which I have taken to calling COVID-21. As we alluded to last week, the much more transmissible variant combined with lots of unvaccinated people, combined with lots of vaccinated people who've stopped wearing masks and resumed near-normal lives, is creating a not-great situation with cases skyrocketing in some states and growing fast in pretty much the rest of them. So I want to start with a messaging question. Why are public health officials having such a hard time communicating that this is literally a different disease than we've been dealing with before? It's affecting different populations. It has different symptoms. It's putting much younger people in the hospital and in intensive care. Is that so hard to communicate? I mean, I I think it is a challenge. I mean, there's certainly been a lot of criticism of how they've handled this. And I think it's also dancing this tight rope of public health officials interacting with the political side of the White House. And they want to be very careful as they communicate messages to make sure they don't undermine confidence in vaccines and the solutions we do have, while also telling people, yes, the vaccines still work. They're still incredibly effective. If you are vaccinated and you do get COVID now, the chances are you'll have a much milder course of disease. So they don't want to essentially, by instituting some new recommendations around mask wearing and so forth, they don't want to inadvertently basically make people throw up their hands and say, wait, so if vaccinated people are at risk now. Why should I even bother getting vaccinated? And I think that's like this delicate um, tightrope to balance because initially I think their pitch was, you know, vaccinated freedom. (laughs) And now it's a little bit of a not quite as the exciting summer as some people were expecting. Yes, we called last week's episode hot COVID summer. (laughs) I mean, it's it's the problem we've been having during the entire pandemic, where a lot of the public sees any change in recommendations as a sign of untrustworthiness um, and not as a sign of an evolving situation and learning new things scientifically. Um, And so they say, well, you used to say we had to do this and now you're saying we have to do this. So, you know, what are you going to say next? I shouldn't listen to you at all instead of thinking of this as an evolving situation that we have to keep responding to in in new and different ways. I also think that the failure of the early summer messaging that a vaccine equals take off your mask, go indoors, go party, whatever, has been a failure. It's been a failure because the people taking precautions are the vaccinated people. That's so clear in every poll. And it's the unvaccinated people who are also not masking, not distancing, and increasingly they are getting hospitalized. Although I don't think, I mean, I think the frustrating thing is that when they said vaccine, vaccines equal freedom, take off your mask, go party, I, that was true when they said it. Sure, um, but <laughs> the failure has been to think that that would motivate the unvaccinated to get vaccinated. And it, and it might have to a lower extent, but also 
using that as a carrot to get people vaccinated has not worked because there was no way to really know who was vaccinated and who was unvaccinated. And so instead of saying, oh, well, I guess I have to get vaccinated if I want to live freely, they just started living freely on their own. Yeah. And and now with Delta, we're seeing the spread. So meanwhile, the politics of COVID are getting, if this is even possible, more divisive. President Biden this week called on Republican governors who have been blocking both vaccine and mask mandates to cut it out. Obviously, this is aimed at states like Florida and Texas, where the biggest tension seems to be what's going to happen when kids who are too young to be vaccinated go back to school maskless. I noticed that Republican Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas saw this week, who was on the Sunday shows urging people to get the vaccine, now says he regrets signing legislation to ban mask mandates in his state. Are we maybe reaching a tipping point or no? I think it's important to keep in mind that like state legislatures aren't in session all the time like Congress is. So, I mean, they, certainly governors, you know, do have authority in some states like Texas to call an emergency special session, you know, when something like this happens. But I don't really see or hear a lot of, you know, indications that they would do that. So I think at some point these states are kind of stuck with what they've decided. And that's just kind of the consequences of through legislation, you know, which is kind of hard to change, um, taking away the flexibility of public health officials to, you know, make these decisions and maybe be more of a political calculation than a public health calculation. And that's how, you know, lawmaking works sometimes. I was going to say, well, Hutchinson is expressing some remorse. I mean, DeSantis seems to be doubling down his um, executive order preventing schools from implementing mask mandates is much more recent and some districts already sort of caving. I think some are still trying to push back on that, but it's quite interesting. Well, he's saying if, if they put in a mask mandate, he'll, well, he won't he'll give them state money. money. <laughs> that, that's pretty tough. Right. It, it, so part of me thinks that, you know, we're already seeing big outbreaks in schools. We're already seeing some schools that have already started have to close and go virtual. Part of me thinks that if anything is going to change the minds of politicians on this, it'll be mass outbreaks among children. But I think we've also seen with the gun violence debate that danger to children does not necessarily move the needle on these very ideological positions. So I... I'm also cynical that it will prompt a reconsideration of these decisions. So this week, we also saw an intra-democratic party fight over the eviction moratorium, which expired at the end of July. The Supreme Court said in no uncertain terms that if the moratorium is extended again, it would have to come from Congress, that the administration couldn't do it. But there weren't the votes to do that even in the House. And House Democrats then put a full court press on the administration to extend it anyway, which the White House spent several days saying it could not do legally. In the end, though, the White House did act with just kind of a fig leaf making this moratorium slightly different by only applying it to the counties that have substantial transmission. Um, Is this just sort of kabuki theater of making the Supreme Court the heavy here, the ones who might have to say to millions of Americans that they could lose their housing in the middle of another COVID spike? I think it's also just buying time. It's kicking it down the road because sometimes court action can be slow. So even if they do end up striking this down and saying, you're not allowed to do this, at least it will buy states, cities, more time to do something to get relief to people who are in danger of being thrown out on the street. There is money left, you know, that hasn't been distributed to help people, you know, pay their back rent and, you know, get more stable. So I think that's a great point that Alice made that if they can buy some more time, then I think Speaker Pelosi 
you know, has encouraged, you know, her members too to go back to their districts over the August work period and push to get that money out. So, you know, whenever that transition is a little more smooth. Yeah, I think that's been one of the most frustrating parts of this. It's not, I mean, to some extent, it's that both renters and landlords who are eligible for this money don't know about it. But even in places where they do know about it, I mean, the money went to states and localities, and they haven't been able to sort of gin up the bureaucracy to get the money out. So it's it's a matter of people who are, you know, there's a story just this morning about people who are already being evicted um, since the moratorium expired, even though there's, you know, in theory, money there for them to to be able to, to pay their back rent. It's not the kind of thing that inspires sort of more confidence in the ability of the government to handle public health crises. This wouldn't be the first program, you know, we've talked about where people often have to jump through a lot of hoops and have a lot of knowledge to actually go through the process of applying and getting that assistance and that can be a barrier, particularly when the states or localities are not set up with enough staff to guide them through the process. So it can often be something where the people who most need the assistance are sometimes either the least resourced or based on the timing of their job, language skills, or what have you, just that navigating the process becomes insurmountable. So there's a little bit of good news and a little bit of bad news on the actual American people front. Um, The country did reach President Biden's 70% of adults with at least one vaccine goal this week, albeit a month after his July 4th target date. But the latest vaccine survey from my colleagues over at KFF shows that a majority of unvaccinated people, 53%, think that the vaccine is actually more dangerous than the virus. Are these folks only going to be convinced by what they're doing in France and now New York, saying you can stay unvaccinated if you want, but you can't go out to dinner or a movie or attend any public events? I also think that um, we're going to see more employers requiring it. Mine just announced that they will, for instance. And I think that'll motivate a lot of people. And I also think that it kind of gives people cover. They'll be able to say, I still oppose this, but I have to, you know, they won't have the shame of, you know, admitting they were wrong or anything like that. So I I think both the restrictions of public places and the employer requirements could get a significant chunk of people if those things are indeed enforced. Are we going to need passports? I mean, the Biden administration, who, of course, is being bashed about by Republican libertarians anyway, saying, you know, too much heavy handed government, kept saying, no, we're not going to have any kind of a, you know, an official an app or or some way to prove that you've been vaccinated. But obviously, that's the direction we're going is that people are going to have to prove they've been vaccinated. Are we going to eventually need some standardized way for people who are in places with mandates to actually prove that they've had the vaccine? I think that's likely. New York City is certainly moving in that direction. And of course, New York already, New York is one of the rare places that actually had a pass, that actually thought about this and created one early in the year, the Excelsior Pass. Many states do have options, too, where you can, you know, download a proof of vaccination. I actually did mine last week through Maryland. It was a nice, easy process, took a couple minutes. So certainly if you're like gaining entry to a restaurant, you know, or something that may be helpful to have something on your phone. But like in terms of like proving 
vaccination to an employer or a situation like that, there are kind of resources in state registries where those resources are available without nationwide vaccine passport platform. We're also hearing that the FDA is sort of trying to to speed up its full approval, at least of the Pfizer vaccine. That was the first one to apply. Sarah, what is actually the process? I've heard all kinds of people, there's this sort of black box at the FDA, you know, you you a company submits its application and then things happen and then we get an announcement. What is there some way for them to speed it up? I think it's it's a possible um I mean the main thing is you start you sort of have to start putting more people on the task and it's who can they pull in and are they qualified to do that work? Um you know what they're essentially doing is they're combing through vast amounts of data, which is quite a bit more than they looked at for the emergency use authorizations. And they're also taking a much closer look at all the various manufacturing facilities that are producing the vaccine and going through all those processes in quite a bit of depth. And in many cases, I think trying to actually physically get to these those facilities and make sure those processes um hold up. And the one thing that's really unique about the FDA compared to many other global drug regulators is FDA really does go back and like re-crunch every number and really tries to verify each piece of data. That's, you know, not a step (laughs) that can just go quickly, particularly with the huge size of these trials. So they're definitely moving fast. I think, you know, at at minimum, they said they would have about a six month review. It seems like they're going to try and do it at maybe three to four months. So when you think about how long the long kind of pandemic hours, this particular part of the FDA, you know, we know has already been working. I think that's a pretty Herculean (laughs) and admirable task for them um, to do. And and while we're talking about the FDA, is there any sign of uh, a nominee to head the agency? It's August, and we still don't have a name to, to head the FDA. No, actually, I think at the White House press briefing yesterday, the press secretary kind of made pretty clear they don't even really have anybody kind of they're close to naming, right, or getting. So they still seem pretty far off in the process, which is what we've heard from some time that probably Janet Woodcock, the acting commissioner, is going to be in there um, as long as she possibly can, which is, you know, about mid-November. So um, they're, for, for whatever reason, they're having a hard time finding people that want the job, that they think they can get through Congress, um, but it's it not certainly, obviously, as we've talked about a lot, not an ideal time to not have a permanent leader. Yes, it is definitely not an ideal time to not have a permanent leader at the FDA. All right, well, let's talk about boosters. Um, a bunch of countries are starting to provide boosters, including Israel, Germany, and the UK. San Francisco is actually offering an mRNA booster to people who got the single-dose J&J shot. But U.S. health officials continue to maintain that there's not enough evidence to show the need for boosters yet. And the WHO is urging richer nations to hold off on boosters until more people in the developing world get them. Uh, is anybody going to listen to that? Um, Rachel, you, you had a story this week about people sort of surreptitiously getting boosters. Is the booster thing just sort of happening on its own? To some degree, it is. Um, and when I asked uh, CDC Director Rochelle Walensky about this um, earlier this week, she didn't have any indication that they were going to be hunting people down. Um, I mean, she didn't encourage people to go seek out these booster shots. But I think there is this recognition in the healthcare system that people are going to get them. Um, and certain health systems have policies where they won't let their doctors, you know, prescribe an extra shot. 
you know, as you mentioned, there's an example in San Francisco of the opposite policy. So we just kind of have this patchwork, as we've seen so many times in this pandemic of, you know, unequal access, depending on where you live. Um, And we also see patients in some cases being dishonest about what vaccinations that they've had to kind of take things into their own hands. And I think public health officials, you know, do have a lot of different considerations that they're juggling in terms of getting everyone ready for, you know, another big round of booster shots, potentially. I, As I talk to pharmacists, as I talk to, you know, public health officials, there is this behind the scenes preparation for the possibility that there might need booster shots at some point. I mean, the American Medical Association announced a billing code for a third Pfizer dose just at the end of last week. So there is this preparation, but we're not quite to that point yet. And I think people are nervous and Public health officials are trying to balance, again, as you mentioned, this global equity issue as well. You know, it just seems like there's hard choices and there's no easy right answers here. Um, and in the meantime, I think people are getting nervous. Yeah. And, and you know, when with the WHO, they talk about, you know, really this this supply should be going overseas um, to, to developing countries. But that, you know... In many states, there are vaccines that are going wanting and are going to expire. Um, they should go in somebody's arm. I mean, even if it's a third shot, that, that's sort of the balance, I guess, that everybody is trying to to have here. And then the concern, I guess, among the, the vaccine holdouts of, gee, is this just about money? I mean, to, you know, Pfizer's been pushing pretty hard for a booster. Pfizer would make a lot of money if everybody has to get another shot. Although one presumes that Pfizer's, Pfizer's going to make a lot of money from wherever their shots are going there's a lot of people left in the world who haven't gotten them yet. Right. And the, the question with the states and their um, unused doses is, is it as difficult for the U.S. to send those shots overseas as sometimes they're claiming? So that's a sort of a, a challenge. I know some people say, well, they're, go- they're expiring here, but could we get them overseas faster? The other thing I think um, it's important to remember is we do need a bit more science and data around the need for boosters. Right now, generally, Pfizer and has kind of justified it based on looking at these antibody levels in people. Not to get too scientific, but that's not sort of yet a proving correlate of, you know, how effective the vaccine is going to be. There are other parts of our immune system that are at play here. So there's sort of a concern that perhaps, you know, the vaccine efficacy is waning in people, but it would be helpful certainly in terms of FDA or CDC weighing in here for there to be more concrete data that actually demonstrated the need. So I think you know, lots of people, particularly if they're immunocompromised or so forth, have sort of panicked. They've gotten their antibody levels tested and they're saying, oh, I don't have these high levels that you're supposed to have after you get the vaccine. And, you know, I'm not saying you might not want to be concerned at all, but there is there's broader processes coming going on here that we don't fully understand. So you shouldn't completely panic and think you're not protected at all from the vaccine. But Rachel, I noticed when when you were um, asking CDC Director Walensky, um, she said that they weren't really tracking this. I mean, how are we going to know whether boosters are needed if we're not really tracking the people who are getting them? Actually, I think that she said the, to my recollection, she said the opposite thing, that they Oh, that can, they are trying to track them. They can track it, which was surprising okay. to me because as I talked to state health officials, they said in these state registries, the data in theory exists, but we don't know whether the CDC has algorithms to, you know, mine that data and make anything meaningful out of it. And I think Director Walensky on Monday said, yes, we are looking at it. We can tell a difference between a second and a third dose of this. And we're monitoring for safety incomes and outcomes. And she encouraged people to kind of report 
if they are getting it, say, we're not going to hunt you down, but we do want to have your safety data so we can kind of build that larger picture of what's happening here. So at some point, we'll get data on boosters from other countries that are doing it more formally. But I mean, one of the issues here, people, there was a guy on NPR this morning who, you know, went to the pharmacy to get a third dose and he gave them a different email address. He's obviously not going to be picked up, or at least his goal is to not be picked up as having gotten a third dose, even though he did. Right. I mean, on the front end, but in theory, on the back end, when states are accumulating all this data, it's your name, your birthday, you know, that kind of identifiers. So it is kind of hard sometimes for pharmacies to identify it when they are administering doses. But in theory, you can patch it all together in the back end. All right. Well, still on the drug beat here, but not on COVID. Um, The FDA approved basically the first ever generic insulin last week. Um, Sarah, this is a really big deal, right? And how have we never really had generic insulin? You know, it's a drug that's 100 years old. Right. So insulin is a more complex molecule than a um, your typical kind of generic pill. And it fell into this weird middle ground where it wasn't quite considered a biologic, wasn't quite considered a small molecule drug. In the ACA, Congress created this pathway to get what is, you know, close to the equivalent of generic drugs, but for more complex biologics. Um, But they sort of created a two-tiered pathway. One was you could get a a biosimilar approval, and we have had some of those products for insulin. So it basically says you're basically equivalent to the brand name, but the caveat is you can't, the product can't automatically be substituted at the pharmacy counter. So when your doctor writes a prescription for the brand, you get the brand, they have to actually write the biosimilar name to get the biosimilar which the way the generic industry model works, that doesn't quite work so well in terms of actually getting more people on the cheaper drugs because one of the ways generics can price lower and save people money is by kind of not doing all that marketing and legwork to actually get their name on the script, right? So this interchangeable designation for this insulin by Vitaris that we got last week actually gives it this higher level status that allows for the automatic substitution. So the hope is there, the system just sort of works on its own to get people swapped for the cheaper drug. Now, the open-ended question here is biologics and medicines like insulin, they're not, they're usually not as cheap as generic drugs, even when they are quote unquote generic. So the question is, is it gonna be cheap enough that um, brand companies aren't able to essentially block them from being on insurance formularies by offering rebates? So we're actually going to have to see what the uptake looks like of this product, where the price goes. Another thing is important to remember is usually in the generic space, you have to have at least three generic competitors for the price to actually drop. So you don't just need competition, you need a certain level of competition. But I think people are going to be watching this really closely because this interchangeable biosimilar idea has been, you know, a huge promise to people around making drugs more affordable. So if this doesn't work, I think policymakers are going to be forced to act. One of the questions that I've had, and I don't know if you know the answer to this, um, is that I, I know with insulin, they tend to be part of sort of this whole process, you know, particularly with people with pumps um, and some of these automatic insulin delivery systems that, it, you know, it only works with that insulin. Um, you know, it's like printer ink that they, you know, that the printer companies found a way that if you use generic printer ink, your printer wouldn't work anymore. I worry that, you know, with generic insulin, will their insulin pumps stop working? So I'm not as familiar with this in terms of the insulin, but I know from covering other generic drugs that involve devices like asthma, inhalers and so forth, reviewing that, that the whole 
component sort of works together is part of the FDA process. So they're going to make sure that, again, when you go and pick up your medicine at the counter and you get that actual full product, you know, the device that goes with it and so forth, your experience should basically be like pretty much exactly the same. The user is going to not have any of those errors. So that is something FDA thinks about. They're not just thinking about, is the drug the same? They're thinking about, is your whole experience the same so that you're not going to have any medication errors? Yeah. When your printer doesn't work, it's a headache. When your insulin pump doesn't work, it's a lot more than a headache. Right. And one of the things about these interchangeable biosimilars um, that made it harder for them to get is companies actually had to conduct what they call switching studies. So they had to make essentially like a clinical trial and then making sure that as if patients were switching back and forth between getting the brand or the biosimilar, there was no adverse effects. So that should make people fairly reassured. Yes, the, the FDA does have lots of work to do. All right, one more on drugs. I want to talk about copay reimbursements, specifically a story from last week by my KHN cubicle mate, Jay Hancock. It's about a lawsuit that Pfizer has filed. Yes, that Pfizer, the maker of the COVID vaccine. Pfizer has been in pretty blatant contravention of COVID rules, funding, quote unquote, outside charities that help Medicare patients pay their share of some really expensive drugs while increasing the price of those drugs. And obviously the patients don't feel it because the charities are paying the patient's share, which sounds like a win-win, except the taxpayers end up paying more. So what could happen if Pfizer actually wins this suit and is allowed to continue basically subsidizing patients and while increasing the price of their drugs? So basically the premise of their lawsuit is they're trying to essentially get rid of all the Medicare blockades around limiting the use of drug copay coupons in the Medicare population. Right now, there's some pretty strict regulations um, around how drug companies can provide patient assistance in Medicare that, you know, they can basically fund third-party charities, and those charities, when they distribute the money, have to be, you know, they can't be only funding Pfizer, using Pfizer money for Pfizer's drug. They essentially can basically fund all cancer drugs for one indication and kind of have to be agnostic. So companies have gotten in a lot of trouble for mishandling this in the past. And the concern of people would really be you take away a big check on drug pricing and drug spending in this country if Pfizer wins this lawsuit, because we know these copay coupons and programs are used to steer patients to more expensive drugs when often cheaper and just as effective drugs exist. Allison, Rachel, I haven't been paying that much attention to the in the weeds details of some of the things that Congress is looking at to pay for the coming reconciliation bill. But I know drug copay coupons have been a piece of this for a while that, that Congress has been wanting to sort of crack down on these um, for the reasons that Sarah was talking about that they, you know, they basically inflate everybody's prices, even though they help the, the each individual patient who's taking the drug. Is this, has this come up yet or do you, do you expect it to? I haven't heard anything specifically on copay coupons quite yet. I mean, there is a big conversation about a rebate policy and drug makers have been complaining about this for ages that they give, you know, rebates to pharmacy middlemen, insurers, and they don't get passed to patients. So there is a big kind of policy discussion around that. But I think that's somewhat distinct from the copay coupon issue. We do know that, you know, there are drug pricing bills in the works that we, in theory, will see at some point in the coming weeks and months. So it's 
possible that they'll, you know, address that more specifically, but we haven't quite seen that yet. And Alice, I saw you had a story that suggested that maybe there wasn't going to be enough money to do all the things that Democrats had wanted to do on health care. Yes. And, you know, even even folks like Bernie Sanders are pretty much openly saying that now. And they're saying, look, we originally wanted a six trillion bill, not a three point five trillion bill. So the fact that we're now, you know, having to work under the three point five trillion limit means that there's going to have to be some tough decisions going forward. Now, they're still pretty early in the process of talking about what those decisions are. But you have a lot of folks saying, Let's do all these programs we want to do, even if that means we only authorize them for a couple of years, because once people get all these new benefits, it's going to be really hard for Congress to allow them to expire and there'll be the political pressure necessary to reauthorize them down the road. And so they could do a two or three year authorization just to make the math work rather than abandoning some things altogether, although we did report in our story that they are admitting now that lowering the Medicare age is not going to happen. There's just not enough funding for that um, and not enough uh, support compared with the other health priorities. And compared with expanding Medicare benefits, right? Right, right. Exactly. That that has a lot more support in the caucus and they think they have the money to do it. Well, I will only point out as the as the person who's been doing this for a long time that the this week actually I think it today is the anniversary of uh CHIP which was created in a reconciliation bill. So it was not made permanent because you couldn't make it permanent and you know they say, "Oh yeah, that this won't be a problem because it's going to be really popular, which it is, and we'll be able to to reauthorize it every time it comes up for renewal." And I can only say that CHIP has had a couple of near-death experiences as it's expired. So, you know, this this Calm, you know, oh, well, it'll be really popular, so we'll be able to renew it. They're kicking the can down the road, and they're going to have issues later on, too. But I'm sure you're right. I'm sure that's exactly what they're going to end up doing. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment where we recommend a story we read this week we think you should read, too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the list on the podcast page at khn.org. Rachel, why don't you start this week? My extra credit, um, the headline is Justice Department Goes After Kaiser Permanente's in Medicare Advantage plans. That was an Axios by Bob Herman. And I think this was just a really great example of finally some oversight in this, you know, growing private Medicare plan space where, you know, it's covering more and more Medicare beneficiaries. And, you know, in some cases, you know, there are majority Medicare Advantage populations, you know, in certain, you know, pockets of the country. So I think um, it's definitely notable that, you know, the Justice Department is looking into this. Kaiser Permanente is not the only company that they're looking into. Um, I think there was also a story um, in Modern Healthcare about Aetna, you know, disclosing um, a Medicare Advantage audit from the Office of the Inspector General. So, I mean, I just think it's a really interesting space. Um, Bob is doing a great job, you know, digging up all these lawsuits. Um, he, you know, also first reported the copay um, drug discount um, lawsuit, too. So I think, yeah, it's just great work and definitely a space to watch as it becomes more and more um, of kind of the federal spend um, in the Medicare program. Yeah, we're doing a lot of work at KHN on this. Also, it is a um, there's a lot of money that's going to it, and there's a, a lot to be investigated. And this is the moment where I get to say that KFF and KHN are not affiliated with Kaiser Permanente because 
We have to say that. Sarah. So I looked at a Kaiser Health News piece by Charlotte Huff, um, 12,000 square miles without obstetrics. It's a possibility in West Texas and focuses on this incredibly large geographic region that basically has one major medical center. um, And they no longer have enough nurses to fully staff their obstetrics unit. And they go through kind of the consequences of that, which are quite difficult for the region to deal with because, you know, women can't quite predict when they're going to um, (laughs) give birth. So this often means having to figure out, do you want to plan an induction, a scheduled birth, rather than risk maybe an incredibly long ambulance ride, having to deliver it in an ER. And it it just shows you too, it's not even that it impacts just the obstetrics patients. Sometimes, you know, these are very small rural communities. You take the ambulance out of service to drive a woman, you know, a couple of hours to the next available hospital that can help her deliver her baby. What does that mean for the other patient, you know, down the road having a heart attack? So, you know, it just shows how difficult in rural areas getting healthcare can be in this country. And I also thought there was like an interesting COVID angle, of course, which is that COVID has taken a lot of nurses out of their homes, gotten them into different parts of the country where we've needed more staffing to deal with COVID, and now they're not necessarily coming back. So it's interesting to see that exacerbation of the problem. Yeah, there seems to be. The one thing that the pandemic has done is it's it's shuffled around people and uh, and their jobs and what they do and where they do them. Alice. So I picked a piece in Task and Purpose by Haley Britsky called Inside the Military's Pervasive Culture of Eating Disorders. And I thought this was a really fascinating piece about how the military's practices of weighing people and um, using tape measures to measure different parts of their body and doing this in front of their peers really exacerbates um, people who are already prone to eating disorders and talks about how people in the military, because of the trauma they endure, are already prone to eating disorders. And all of this is done in the name of maintaining a, you know, fit uh, force, but it also is just very antiquated and unscientific. You know, people who are super buff could fail these tests based on arbitrary weight and, you know, body circumference numbers. And so not only is it not promoting health, it's really making things worse. And I think that there's a lot to think about here for people outside the military. And there's a lot of reconsideration right now of, you know, schools, you know, weighing kids and creating an atmosphere of shame and medical providers doing the same and really what that can do to people who are already vulnerable to developing these kinds of eating disorders in the future. Yeah, it was a super interesting story. Um, my extra credit this week is a radio interview from NPR. It was on over the weekend, so you might have missed it. It's called Vaccination Status Questions Do Not Violate HIPAA, Consumer Health Expert Explains. And it's just a really accessible explanation by a former HIPAA official at HHS of just what the HIPAA privacy rules do and do not regulate. And the short answer is that basically, it's just the health industry itself. So no reporters are free to ask athletes about their vaccine status, as restaurant owners are free to ask customers. And in most cases, employers are free to ask their workers. If you're confused, you should read or listen to the interview. It's really good. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoy the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Special thanks, as always, to our ace producer, Francis Yang, who managed 
manages to make us all sound good. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. Rachel? At Rachel Kors. Sarah? At Sarah Carlin. Alice? At Alice Wolstein. We will be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy. Be healthy.